Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. I, um, I switched it up on you a little bit. We were going to be closing out the previous series, and it's not that I forgot that Advent started today, but I forgot that Advent started today. And, uh, and so we were going to be closing out with a, a verse or a chapter from Second Peter uh, from the last sermon series, but, uh, but as we start our Advent series today, it's called Eternal Peace. Um, Just as the Jewish people two millennia ago had been awaiting on a Messiah to come, a long-awaited one who would come and set captives free from the bondage and the yoke of this oppressive government that they were under, we too await a second advent or a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, too, like those first peoples, await the coming of Christ to set right once and for all the problem of sin in this world. Yes, he set it right on the cross, and he rose from the grave to show us that he conquers death. Therein lies our promise. Therein truly lies our hope. He is our salvation. But yet we As we also have been saved by God through Christ Jesus, those of us who have surrendered our lives to belief in Jesus Christ, we are also being saved for eternity. So we are saved, yes, but we are also being saved for a point in time when Christ will return and consummate this relationship with us, where we will truly be with the bride, or excuse me, we'll be with the bridegroom, Jesus. Today, I want to talk to you a little bit about hope. How many of you over the past couple of years have struggled with this thing called hope? Nobody. Awesome. You guys are great because I have. I've struggled immensely from time to time, because I, I have my news apps I read. I'm like the old guy and the lazy boy that used to have the paper, but now I have my phone because it has the news apps on it. You know, So I read the news, and you can't help but get depressed when you read the news because there's rarely any good news in there to read. But I want to stay on top of what's going on in the world. Why? Because I want to know how God is moving and working amidst all of the chaos and struggle and strife of this world. I do believe that, yes, God is still in control. He's still seated on the throne, and nothing escapes his attention. Yes, he has seen and he has been moving in the world over the past year and a half to two years. But those with eyes to see and ears to hear are the ones who see and hear how God has been moving. If you've gotten sucked into the trap of negativity, if you've gotten sucked into this trap called politics, if you've gotten sucked into 
any number of arguments on the world stage today, my guess is you've lost a bit of hope. But if you've gotten sucked into the word of God and you realize the Holy Spirit is alive and well and moving and working today, then my guess is you have a reason to hope. There's a story told of a school system in a large city that had a program to help children with their schoolwork during stays in city hospitals. So there would be kids occasionally that would go into the hospital. They'd be there for extended periods of time. And so this local school said, we don't want these kids to get too far behind in their studies. So we're going to go ahead and uh, we'll have a round of different teachers that'll be on call and they'll go into the school systems to help out in whatever way they can. So one day there was a teacher who was assigned uh, in this program and she received what would appear to be a routine call to go and speak and teach this particular child in this hospital room. She took the child's name, she took the child's room number, and she talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. The teacher told her, we're studying nouns and adverbs in his class right now, and I'd be grateful if you could go help him understand so that he doesn't get too far behind. Well, the hospital program teacher went to see this boy one specific afternoon. No one had mentioned to her that the boy had been badly burned and was in such immense pain. She was so upset at the sight of the boy that she stammered as she told him, I've been sent by your school to help you with nouns and proverbs, adverbs. Sorry, I'm not great with the English language. (laughs) But the Bible has proverbs, so there you go. All right. She says, I've come to help you with nouns and adverbs. When she left, she felt she hadn't accomplished anything that day. She went through the routine. She went through the list of stuff. She went through all of the different things that she would normally do for any regular student. That's beautiful music. Sorry, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I think it's awesome. Mm, Sorry, there's a phone. Never mind, let's continue. Because I know you're on pins and needles waiting to get back to this story, right? Sorry. I didn't mean to call you out. I thought it was cool. All right. She felt that she must have not done anything to help this kid out. She felt like the day was wasted and in vain. She came back the next day. And uh, nurse asked her, what did you do to that boy? Well, she kind of freaked out. right? Uh, I didn't do anything. I just taught him nouns and adverbs. He said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. His whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back. He's, he's starting to respond to the treatment we've been giving him. It's as though he's decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy explained that he had, been com- he had completely given up hope until that teacher arrived. He said, everything changed When he came to this simple realization, they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? See, a person who has hope is capable of looking beyond the trials and sorrows and difficulty of this life and toward a future called peace. Why is that? Well, the author of the book of Isaiah Isaiah, the prophet, says that this coming Messiah 
would be known as the prince of what? Peace. And it says of his government, peace will never end. So yes, we can say that God is a God of love and that is the core essence of who God is. But God's kingdom is defined by what? Peace. And for that we have hope. Because when has there ever been a time in your lifetime when there has been peace across the globe? Of any kingdom for any period of time that would be considered substantial. When have Americans, and yes, we live in somewhat cushy kind of living, but when we read the news, we see anything but peace in the world around us. I contend this morning that you and I, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, are citizens of that kingdom. If truly we are citizens of that kingdom as children of God, then what should we be bringing to the world? Love and peace. It doesn't matter what you think you should be giving to the world. What matters is what God says we should be giving to the world. And Jesus showed us exactly how to live that life. It's not a life of pointing fingers and condemnation, though sometimes when we tell the truth and speak it in love, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. But... That love and that peace should so exude every fiber of our being as believers in Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit who precedes us, who makes a way for us, and who empowers us can truly change the world one life at a time with a message of hope that there is a future and it's much more exciting and amazing than what we're experiencing now. I speak to my kids and I've spoken to other kids on this topic called heaven. And, I, and a lot of, this has been my, my experience in speaking with kids, middle school age and younger. Um, they get this picture that we're somehow gonna be transcribed or transformed into these beings with white robes and wings and we all get a harp as soon as we go through the gates and we're sitting on clouds doing this plucking away somehow having learned all the all the ways and musical abilities to play this harp the scripture says nothing of that when you start to unpack for kids the wonders of this place called the kingdom of peace where heaven is, where God resides. And you start to unpack the goodness of what that space and that place looks like and what the experiences are like. It really, for me, takes on a whole different viewpoint. You guys will probably disagree with me here. One of the common questions I get from kids is, will there be, will my pet be there? You've probably told your kid no, and I'm going to shame on you. 
Because here's the thing. Well, pets don't have souls. We can have this theological debate some other time. But hear me out. In God's perfect creation before the fall, were there animals in heaven? What makes us think there won't be animals in God's perfect heaven? Because that's one of the biggest questions kids want to know. Is my pet going to be there? Animals, I believe, will be there. We know that trees and plants and fruit and all of that stuff will be there. We know there are crystal seas and, uh, you know, uh, paths made of gold. If God said before the fall that everything he created on every given day was good at the end of the day, what makes us think that God's good wouldn't be there when we get there? Sorry, I went way off on a tangent. I'm just saying, we can debate this some other time. Don't take it as the gospel truth. We may get up there and you're like, where's my pet? And he's like, I'm sorry, he's in hell. I'm just kidding. Only cats go there, so. I'm kidding. There's a movie, all dogs go to heaven, so it's got to be the gospel truth. Have I lost you? I'm going to say even in our darkest moments, we have hope. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what, we're coming into this Advent season, the first Sunday of Advent, and you may not be coming into this season with a sense of hope right now. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you are struggling with temptation to different things, and and your minds are anywhere but Christmas right now. Is that your pacemaker? That was BJ, our youth pastor. Way go, BJ. <laughs> Love you, buddy. Sorry. Maybe now would be a good time. If you haven't silenced your cell phones, <laughs> please do so. <laughs> Unless you're playing a game. All right. This is, Advent has not started well for me. <laughs> yeah, oh, my goodness gracious. Here we go. This Advent, we're going to be unpacking Isaiah chapter 9. It seems weird to go to Isaiah for Christmas, but I want you to go there with me. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to start at verse 1. And we're only, this is really uncharacteristic for me. I like to read whole chapters for a sermon. I'm only going to do two verses today, and I want, I want you to understand this. You can leave that up on the screen. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah was a prophet of God for the nation of Israel. Actually, you have Israel and Judah. He prophesied to both. And during Isaiah's time of prophetic speaking, he was speaking to a culture not much different than our own. He was speaking to a Jewish nation who were devoted as the chosen people of God to follow God faithfully. Guess how they were doing with that? during Isaiah's day. Not great. See, they had, and understand when I say this term, they had prostituted themselves to the worship of other gods. They literally had given themselves, heart, soul, mind, and body to other worship structures. Sometimes sexually, yes, because they had sex cults in those days where it was part of the worship to go to these temple prostitutes. I won't go any further than that. You can only let your mind imagine what they would do. 
They would do this because they would want a fruitful harvest for their crops. Or because maybe their spouse was barren, their wife was barren. Or their, they wanted their husband to have the son they've always wanted because it was a, somewhat of a patriarchal society. And so you had male prostitutes and you had female prostitutes and they would go to these places. Now, can you imagine in that day and age, a people chosen by God, whom God had said, you are my people and I am your God. Follow my ways and commands and I will be with you. But if you continue a pattern, if you go through this pattern of behavior where you give yourself over to idolatry and wicked behavior, I'm not going to stick around for that. Ironically, God stuck around a lot longer than he necessarily needed to. He contended with them for centuries in their sin. And so now you have these kingdoms that are starting to encroach upon the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And God has withdrawn his protection from them because they have so given themselves over to other worship of these pagan nations that those pagan nations had begun to infiltrate them. They had become, they started taking on the customs of the cultures surrounding them. And God said, I've told you, please don't do that. Stop being this way. Don't do these things. It's bad. And it will lead you down a path of destruction. And so he withdraws. And then you have all of these different cultures coming in. The Phoenicians, the Assyrians. And they begin to take over and plunder the various cities of the northern and southern kingdoms. Isaiah is writing during a time period like this. And Isaiah, yes, pulls no punches. If you read through his whole book, it is long, so take some time to read it. But if you read through it, he's basically speaking on behalf of God and he's saying to the people, this is going really sour, really fast, and here's what's going to happen. And he lays out what God's going to do in judgment against them. But then there are points throughout his writing where he gives glimpses of hope. And this is one of those. We read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. After he, you, There's a nevertheless there in my translation, the New Living Translation. If you want to know what the nevertheless is there for, read chapter 7 and chapter 8. That's really what's tied to this chapter. He's really kind of laying out some bad stuff, and then he gets, or he's laying out some good and bad stuff, but then he gets to this. He says, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. So he's saying, God's going to bring judgment. He's going to allow you to be pretty much under the thumb of foreign enemies, and they're going to slaughter some of you. They're going to deport some of you to the various areas of the kingdom in what we call an exile or the diaspora, and, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to live there for a while. You're going to have to put down roots because you're going to be there over a generation, actually closer to two generations, before God will allow anything good to happen. But he says, nevertheless, that time of darkness and that time of despair, it's going to come to an end. It will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled why does that have, you're probably like, I don't even know what that means, right? Zebulun and Naphtali, sounds like a rock group, 
right? What is, those are territories of the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? That would be close to where if you were to look on a map and see the Sea of Galilee, which would be the northern part of modern-day Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali would be just to the left on the map or to the east on the map and northern part there. Huh. Hold that thought for a minute. Zebulun and Naphtali, they will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. He's saying the same thing. He said, Zebulun and Naphtali, there'll come a time when Galilee of the Gentiles, same region, same area, will be what? It lies along that road that runs between the Jordan and the sea. This was a major trade route of that day and age. In the ancient times and during Jesus' day. He says, in the future, 700 years, mind you, Galilee of the Gentiles, which runs along the road between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. And then we have this little poetic prose here. When it's indented like this, it means it's poetry more often than not. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Now, I'm going to be going back and forth between the Old Testament, the New Testament, and modern day. Okay? We live somewhat in a land of darkness right now. Our culture is so shifted to take on the ways of the world and the actions of the world that it seems that things are upside down especially for the church. There are some churches who have said, well, let's just adopt the, the ways of the culture because really, what's the big deal? We need to reach the lost for Christ. So maybe if we just make some allowances in these kinds of things, then it's going to be okay. The problem is when you do that and you compromise the truth for a lie, everything else is muddied. I've asked my kids this before. How about if I made a batch of brownies, but I took a pinch of our dog's poop and put it in there in the batter and mixed it? You've heard the analogy, right? If you knew that I, I did that, would you have some of my, some of you say, yeah, he killed all the germs. The vast majority of us would be so disgusted by that thought that to even mix a little lie with the truth of the gospel would be something we'd never do. What's the key point this morning? It's this. When it seems that all hope is gone, God's timing is perfect. You may, you may be asking yourself this question this morning. God, where are you? I've waited for years. I've waited for weeks. I've waited for fill in the blank. I've prayed this prayer, I've asked for this thing, and you still haven't come through for me yet. My life isn't what I thought it would be. It's not played out the way I expected it to. So God, where are you? If you're so good and you're so loving, where are you? You see, it took God 70 years to come through for the kingdom of Israel. Do you know that? He told them, it's going to take 70 years. So those of you who are going into exile right now, you won't see it. That's not hope-filled. That's kind of stinky, if I'm being honest. How long did it take for this Messiah to come to Galilee of the Gentiles when Isaiah wrote this? 
700 years. 700 years. How old is the United States? We're just shy of 250 years old. So triple that-ish. That's how long it would take for this light to shine in that region. How long are you willing to wait? You see, there, this is why Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, it says it was counted as righteousness to Abraham and to Moses and several other characters. Why? Because they didn't get to see the day that they had been proclaiming and foreshadowing for the future. It would not come in their lifetimes, but they believed, they had faith in God that his promises are true, and they kept the faith and pushed toward that. They raised up the generations to have that faith too, to keep them pointed in that direction. Are we doing a good job of that today? When we dumb down the gospel so much, its light doesn't shine. Instead, we sing that song as kids, this little light of mine, I'm going to let shine. We've indefinitely, as a church in our culture, put a basket over that light. Because we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to be hurtful. We, we only want to say God is good and God is loving, that there's no justice to God. If God is truly just, then that means there's punishment, right? Have I lost you guys? Okay. There is punishment. As a matter of fact, even the writer of Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those he loves. Just like a father or a mother disciplines their children when they do something wrong. But there's still hope. So let's look at Zebulun and Naphtali and Nazareth and Galilee. Biblical scholar and theologian Henry Bannister describes the geographic significance of Zebulun and Naphtali with respect to their placement between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. Again, if you look on a map in that little sliver of territory there between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, it's a short little narrow span of land. And this is where Zebulun and Naphtali were. They were in the pathway of all the invasions of the day. Again, a trade route, but it was a major thoroughfare. If you were going to attack from the north, you'd go that way and wipe out everything as you were coming through. He writes, Zebulun and Naphtali were in this, this pathway of invasion. Syrian and Assyrian, as a result, suffered extremely. So we have the Syrian armies, then we have the Assyrian armies, and then eventually we have the Babylonian armies coming down and sacking Jerusalem. And then we have the Greeks coming in under Alexander the Great. And then we have them just kind of falling apart and the Romans take over. It's where we get the Greco-Roman culture, which is when Jesus would come on to the scene. Biblical scholar and author Andrew Fawcett he gives further insight to the Jewish people in this region during that time period. Listen to what he says. The northern part of Naphtali, which was north of Zebulun, was inhabited by a mixed race of Jews and Gentiles of the uh, bordering Phoenician race. So this is the northern territory was despised by the Jewish people. You go from the region of Samaria, which is about midways between Galilee and Jerusalem, all the way up to the northern region. They were considered mixed races because they were actually intermarried with the pagan culture surrounding them. And so the Jewish, the purebred Jewish people hated the northerners. Guess where Jesus would come from? 
the most despised region. This is why Nathaniel, one of the disciples who's called of God, can say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Do you see what's going on there? Because they had been raised from a very early age on that those northerners were jerks. They were stupid. They were idiots. They had pretty much compromised themselves as much as anybody could compromise themselves that we wash our hands of them. We want to have nothing to do with them. You've heard me say in Jesus' day and age, the religious Jewish people would actually not even go through that territory. If they were going to the region of Galilee, which they didn't do often, but they did some, they would actually go around the region of Samaria, cross over the Jordan River, take the longest path necessary so that they didn't even get the soil of the land of these people on their robes or their sandals. But 700 years after Isaiah, in the most despised territory, one of the most considered the most dark regions of that area, a light would shine. Well, Brandon, wasn't Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yes, but he grew up in Nazareth. Mary got the vision of the angel in Nazareth, where she was from. Joseph her betrothed was born in Bethlehem and is where his family roots were. That'd be like me. I was born in Stanford, Kentucky, having to drive back seven to seven and a half hours to sign up for the census and then come back to old Butler, PA, right? My kids have been raised here for the most part. This is what's home for them. This is the same with Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem, spent a short amount of time in Egypt, and then grew up as a young boy in Nazareth. Fawcett goes on to write that this same region, which was so darkened before by invaders, by compromise, by any number of things you could think of, it'll be among the first to receive the Messiah's light. It was in despised Galilee that Jesus' first disciples, excuse me, Jesus' first and most public, publicly exercised ministry happened. Where did Jesus spend most of his ministry? What was he, he where did he walk on the water? Where did he heal demon-possessed people and the blind and the deaf and the lame? Where was that? In the region of Galilee, we would call this the region of Western Pennsylvania, okay, where multiple cities lie. The region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, there were multiple cities that Jesus would travel and minister in. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, this is now, flash forward 700 years from Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus is now striking out in his ministry. And his cousin John, who was John the baptizer, or John the Baptist to many of you, has been arrested for crimes against Herod. He left and he returned. It says Jesus left and returned to Judea, or left Judea, which is in the southern part, and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, and then he left there and moved on to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun 
and Naphtali. This is in the book of Matthew. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea beyond the river, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. One final note before we move on to the next point is even after Jesus' resurrection and after his ascension to heaven on the day of Pentecost, Galilee again would be recognized for the significant role. I want you to understand the significance of this. It's really hard unless you think of like, what is the most, uh, don't blurt it out. I was going to say, what's the most despised city around this area? And just keep that to yourself so we don't, we don't want to raise any anger points this morning. So, Think of, to your, think of yourself and where would be the place you would hate to live the most, okay? Maybe it's not in western Pennsylvania. Maybe it's somewhere else, okay? Think of that place. That would be like Galilee to the Jewish people and to many foreigners, quite, quite actually. Galilee would make another appearance. This is why you cannot make this stuff up. If this is a made-up story, Galilee would not be in the picture, it just wouldn't. Why would you make Galilee the place where the Messiah would come from? You wouldn't. You'd make it Jerusalem, the holy city, Zion. You wouldn't make it Galilee. Now listen to this, Acts 2, 1 through 8. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, and suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. They who? The, the disciples. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and they began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. At that time, now listen to this, there were devout Jews from every nation. Again, the day of Pentecost was a festival celebrated by Jewish people. They would pilgrimage into this location in Jerusalem and celebrate Pentecost. And so you have Jews from multiple different language-speaking Jewish groups and nations from around that are in town on that day. And when they heard these loud voice or the loud noise, everyone came running. So it's not like the disciples just spilled out onto the streets and started speaking in the foreign languages of the day. They heard this mighty rushing wind and they all came running. It'd be like a building crashing in the local city. If you're nearby, you'd hear this rumble. You come running. So they hear this and that's when they start to see these disciples. When they heard a loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers or the disciples. They were completely amazed and they said, how can this be? They exclaimed. And here's the point I wanted to make. These people are all from Galilee. And yet we can hear them speaking in our own native languages. It must have been uncommon to know the different languages of the territory. They had a common language in Judaism called Hebrew that they would be able to speak and know each other by. Most of them would understand Greek because it was a, the, the Roman Empire was predominantly Greek-speaking at that time. But they heard the disciples speaking in the various different languages, which is something that was not commonly taught at the local school systems, in the synagogues. 
How is it we hear these Galileans speaking in our language? It's because a light from Galilee will shine. And that light imparted his light into the lives of men and women who would carry that light into the world. And this was the beginning of that. It says, a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Bannister breaks down this verse in the following way. He says, the people that walked in darkness, the darkness of commingled Judaism and paganism, they will see a great light, the light, namely, of the Messiah's own presence in preaching. Biblical scholar George Gray explains that darkness in this context actually signifies captivity. It may not be physically dark outside, even though it's really gloomy in Western PA this time of year. But darkness can signify captivity. I've struggled with depression off and on for many years. And depression, even when it's beautiful outside, can feel dark. I don't know if you've experienced this or not. I pray to God you never have. But when you fall into a state of depression, it doesn't matter what good is going on around you. It doesn't matter how beautiful and warm it is outside and what the fragrances are of the spring flower. It doesn't matter any of that. When you're struggling with this, it feels like darkness. I remember explicitly one day I was sitting on the back porch really struggling. It was beautiful outside. The kids were playing in the backyard. And uh, Sarah, I believe Sarah Lee was sitting there with me. And I just, I said, it just feels so dark. Man, that's a desperate place to be. I don't mean to tell you to pity. I'm not saying that to pity me. I'm just saying this is some of the internal struggles, you know, that go on with, with me. I don't know if it goes on with you. It can feel like darkness when it's beautiful. Can you imagine waiting on a Messiah to come? Your every situ- your, your situation is very dire. And you're saying, God, please help. I need you. If you're truly there, help me. But it's dark. God, at just the right time in human history, pulled back that veil of heaven and stepped into our space. Sure, he worked from heaven and, and, and he still works to bring about his good and perfect will. But he decided to intimately come and be with us, God with us. There's, there's nothing that can really explain that away. And we have extra biblical sources, those sources outside of the scripture that attest to this man, Jesus, having performed miracles, walked the face of the earth. He was not a made up person, despite what some people want to say. Oh, he's not a real, he's just a legendary figure. He's not, no, we actually have historical sources outside of scripture that attest to the fact that this was a living being, a real person who walked the face of the earth, who performed miracles, and who it is said when he died rose from the grave. We have Josephus and Tacitus, and several others that attest to this fact. 
Again, if you were going to make up a story, you wouldn't make the places where the Messiah came from a place that was not very nice. You wouldn't make the first people, the first witnesses on the scene of the grave, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ later on, women. women. Women's testimony would never be allowed in the courtroom at that day and age. And you wouldn't, if you look all the way through Scripture, you wouldn't make the heroes of Scripture total screw-ups. Every one of them, with exception of Jesus. I'm not, now that sounds really crass, but I'm telling you the honest truth here is that if you were making this up, you would give the best case scenario and you wouldn't take the worst of all people. We talked this morning in a class I'm teaching on Sunday mornings right now about Joseph. Why would Joseph be chosen to be the stepfather of Jesus? And why was Mary chosen as the one girl to bear the Messiah. What made them any different than you or I? In chapter 7 of Isaiah, we, we hear Isaiah even saying that in the future, some 700 years down the road, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Think of the impossibility surrounding that narrative. Think of the cultural norms of that day and age that would put them in jeopardy of being stoned to death because having a child out of wedlock would put you in jeopardy of being stoned by the Jewish people. Even though it was illegal under the Roman government to put anybody to death, it still happened in the different regions of Judaism. Because the the Romans didn't really care if a Jew lived or died. The land of deep darkness, the light will shine. Listen to this. I want you to hear this. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning, the word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. Do you know what Paul is, or Paul, you know what John is saying there? Okay, the Word is capitalized in this context. It's referring to a proper noun, (laughs) a person, a place or a thing. But we know it's a person because later on he says, he existed. So who is John talking about? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So who's this light that we're speaking of? Well, actually, John gives us a different description than Matthew or Luke do in the birth narrative of Christ. God created everything through him. And nothing was created except through him. Colossians, Paul says the exact same thing. Everything holds together in him. Everything was created for him and through him and by him. Listen to what he goes on to say. The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought, here's the key word. His life brought light 
to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Do you see how this is so woven together? It seems almost too good to be true. John says that this word that was God and also was with God came into the world and he gave his light to everyone. And that this light cannot be extinguished by the darkness. What is it said of Zebulun and Naphtali? It's dark, but it won't be dark forever. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light, John tells us. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world which he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Why? <laughs> they should have. We talked about this this morning too. Wasn't there scripture in the Old Testament prophesying that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? And wasn't Jesus born in Bethlehem? Yes. You think about everything that had to be perfectly in place to make this happen. Jesus couldn't have decided where he was going to be born because he wasn't born yet. It was Caesar who caused the census to be taken. And in order for census to be taken accurately, you had to go back to the town of your birth. And so here, Joseph and Mary, in 70 miles north in Nazareth, travel 70 miles to Bethlehem, close to Jerusalem. Crazy stuff in order to manifest and bring about the fulfillment of prophecy. I can barely orchestrate what I'm going to eat in the mornings. Can you imagine orchestrating where you're going to be born before you're born? And in order to say that you can orchestrate where you're going to be born before you're born means you must be of divine nature. He came to his own people and they rejected him. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. They are reborn, not by physical birth, resulting from human passion or plan, but by a birth that comes from God. Jesus was born of a virgin, not by human passion, but by the Holy Spirit. And then we... When we believe in him, are reborn, not by passion of the flesh, but rather by the spirit as well. This is why John chapter 3 verse 16 really is wrapped around this idea of being reborn. It's Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He closes with this. So the word became human or flesh and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. The bottom line is that Jesus is the light of hope in this dark world. I'm going to go ahead and have our worship team come up to close this out because I want to wrap this up. I can't guarantee it's going to be a neat package. But I want you to understand 
that what was written 700 years before Jesus' birth came true in a way that could only be orchestrated by a God of possibilities and a God of hope. One of the early explorers of South Africa's oceans uh, was Bartholomew Diaz. He came around the bottom part of Africa. It's known today as the Cape of Good Hope. But in his day and age, it was known as the Cape of Storms. Because when you were navigating in those days, it was a tumultuous, it still is tumultuous and treacherous down on the southern tip of Africa when you're going around because of the, the underwater currents and because of the storms that just clash in that region. There are many shipwrecks around that spot. But the king of Portugal, John II, who came later than Bartholomew, uh, he supposedly changed the name to the Cape of Good Hope for he saw ahead of him the jewels and the treasures of India. He knew that beyond those tumultuous waters was hope for seeking something he desired. You can call this a life of storms if you wish. You can focus on the storms and be sunk underneath the waves of the tumult of this life. Or you could keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the light and the life of this world, and rise above the storms of this life. It doesn't mean you're not going to be battered a little bit. It doesn't mean you're going to be knocked off your balance a little bit. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you can rise above the wind and the waves. No matter what you're going through, no, no matter who you are, and I mean this sincerely, God desires to be for you, not against you. And if you feel that God's against you, there's a couple things you could do. You could pray, God, why are you against me? And allow him to reveal if he truly is. Because God is not against us in the way that you might think he is. If you're living a life that doesn't measure up to his desires for your life, then it's going to be rough. I'm not going to lie to you. And you can blame God that your life is going rough, but if you're caught in the midst of sin and temptation and you're living in ways that don't line up with his purposes for your life, then it's going to be bad. And you can curse God all you want, but God's not causing your conflict and problems. You are. It's God's desire, though, for you to know his son, Jesus, that light that came into the world, that shines in the darkness, that illuminates what is true and what is good. And it also illuminates in our lives where things are not quite right. And you may think God has forgotten you. You may think God doesn't really exist because if he did, then X, Y, and Z would happen in your life. But I promise you this, God is never late. He's rarely early, but he's always on time. And it may not be your time, but it's always his perfect time. So this Christmas season, this Advent, where are you? Are you in the dark? Do you feel this gloom and this weight hanging over you? The question is why? Sure, there may be natural circumstances in life that have happened to you, and it's hard. But even though it's hard, God is good. And there is a hope beyond your current circumstances, that if you just lean in to Christ, that hope will be brighter, will illuminate so much more in your life than you ever realized. 
where trust resides. Trust resides in believing when all hope seems gone because Jesus is trustworthy no matter what. When it seems that all hope is gone, God's timing is perfect. Heavenly Father, in this place, the beginning of this Advent season, God, we... We do wrestle and struggle. And oftentimes we find ourselves wrestling and struggling against the flesh when the reality is it's a spiritual battle. (laughs) We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, and rulers of this dark world. God, we know that you have won that battle. That you won the battle over sin. You won the battle over death, and therein lies our hope. So, Father, in the beginning of this Advent season, remind us that no matter what's going on in our lives, what losses we've incurred, what difficulties we're struggling with, that you are a God who loves, who sees, who cares, and who desires for us to follow you. Forgive us where we've wandered off the path. Forgive us where we've sat down and given up. And remind us that There is hope. Remind us that there is truth and lead us in the way of the path of righteousness, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.